Welcome to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, a ministry of the Ezra Institute, where we equip current and emerging Christian cultural leaders with biblical worldview, Christian philosophy, and cultural apologetic studies through residential training programs and print and digital resources. We are really glad that you're listening to one of our digital resources today. I am Dr. Michael Thiessen together here with Dr. Joe Boot and Pastor Nate Wright. And Nate, you're going to introduce for our listeners the topic that we uh, are continuing on. Uh, we, we had we had set a stage for talking specifically about the family, and it seems that Pastor Alistair Begg has hijacked us for a third week in a row. Can you maybe share with our listeners why? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're, we're going to talk about this a little bit more, and some of our listeners might ask the question why we're spending so much time responding. Uh, first of all, we won't be talking about the same issue in the same uh, conversation. Alistair, uh, was, uh, he preached a sermon at his church, which was really sort of an apologetic uh, for the whole thing. He addressed the controversy with his church, and I would just say good for him for for actually bringing it to the forefront and, and uh, talking about it to his church family, as I'm sure many of them have questions and they all have social media. Um, but the sermon really did sort of amount to doubling down on the advice that he gave. I think he actually had a really great opportunity to be able to say you know, I I, uh, I was talking and, and my sort of grandfatherly instinct took over and uh, I maybe said some things that I wouldn't say now. And on, upon further reflection, this is how I maybe should have answered. I think he had a great opportunity and I think his uh, credibility would have grown had that happened. But instead, he doubled down. And, uh, and so the reason we want to talk about this is not just to sort of validate our opinions that we've already stated for two weeks. We wouldn't be talking about this if this was a Rob Bell sermon right? Because Rob Bell has already disgraced himself. He's not really running in our circles. The reality is, is that Alistair Begg is a trusted voice and has been a trusted voice for a very, very long time. And so many of the people who would listen to us are also people who likely have, have thought well of Begg, who would listen to his sermons, who might pass along some of his teaching. And therefore, I think the New Testament precedent for us is that we ought to warn people that some of, the, of what uh, the pastorally advice and, and, quite frankly, his exegesis of Scripture is not uh, on, on point. And furthermore, the other thing is this really does give us an opportunity to talk about um, a space that Ezra has been passionate about for a long time. And that is some of some of these pastor, pa, pastoral influencers who uh, are able to exegete theology and, and able to kind of teach theology in a, a, a credible way and yet fail to be able to apply it culturally and to give sound biblical advice to people who are truly struggling with how does my faith impact uh, the world that I live in. And so it, 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 it enables us to kind of talk about stuff that Ezra is uniquely equipped to talk to. And we do. We, we, we want people to think through this. There'd be many people who have um, been uh, influenced by Beg who might want to go back and, uh, and listen to that, that sermon and might be influenced by some of what he said. He's a very compelling teacher. So that's why we're coming back to this. And uh, I think it's important. And so we have actually some audio clips from that particular sermon, and uh, we want to play some of them for you and respond just to help you think Christianly and biblically about, um, you know, Beg's sort of doubling down here. So, um, Michael, I don't know if you want to jump right into the next clip. Um, there's probably a lot for us to talk about.
about. So um, instead of uh, continuing to wax poetically, let's listen to what uh, Alistair has to say and we'll respond. Yes, everyone, this is the, the first step of, of critiquing a sermon so that it is hermeneutically accurate. Um, and so what we decided we would do is we'd just play his words for you. So our first section here, where we're going to play the clip and then Joe and Nate and I are going to respond. This is where we're trying to point out to everybody a, a, a false starting point or an error of first principles. Very often, if your fundamental or your first thought is erroneous, it's going to lead you down uh, a bad track. And pastors, we do this all the time. And so we want you to hear begs words for himself as to the purpose or his first thought as to giving the advice of a uh, of a grandmother going to the wedding of someone who is either cross-dressing and marrying the same sex or uh, someone who is marrying someone who is cross-dressing and is the same sex. So here we go. Naturally, I do not like them. Quote, but I am called to the supernatural work of loving them, not ignoring them, not avoiding them, but actively seeking to bless them. I am not called to walk on past them like the religious leaders in the parable of the Good Samaritan. No, I am called to be like the Samaritan, who is the classic illustration of loving and lending and doing good without a calculator and without the expectation of a payback. Now, that is then the context when a grandmother phones me up in tears and gravely concerned for the circumstances in relationship to one of her grandchildren. I'm not quoting the book to her. I'm only responding to her. She wrote a long letter. It sat on my desk for a long time. This happens to us all as pastors all the time. And on that occasion, when I listened to her talk, my great concern was for her and for her relationship with her granddaughter. I wasn't thinking about the nature of the circumstances in that moment of time. All I was thinking about was how can I help this grandmother not to lose her granddaughter, who has already publicly turned her back on God and her back on God's design and in every other way. And in the course of that conversation, I said, you know, one of the ways in which to catch your granddaughter off guard is actually do the opposite of what she expects you to do. What does she expect you to do? Avoid her. Stay away from her. Don't get contaminated by the situation. I said, well, isn't that interesting? So what would happen if you actually went? Well, that gave great pause. And I said, but you should talk to your husband you got to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And those were all the caveats that went around the conversation. But then I said, well, I think you should go. And why don't you give her a gift? Okay, so, Joe, what is the error in his pastoral first principles there? What, what are some thoughts that you've got or what are we concerned about? Like, let's, mm -hmm. let's explain this for people. Well, I've got just two, two remarks to make about that first uh, segment that I think are probably relevant. And as Nate has already said, you know, our concern here is in a respectful 
um, and God-honoring way to critique a brother on a very, very significant um, and serious issue so that, first of all, he might himself think better of it and uh, offer different guidance and uh, take a different stance on this. And second, that those who uh, may have listened to this and heard all about this and seen the controversy, perhaps even heard the sermon, uh, might also be able to rightly discern what's going on here. Now, the first thing that I think is a critical error is that the front line of the conflict in our culture today, the, the, the very front, there are multiple fronts. There are multiple fronts, of course, in the struggle between the truth of the gospel, the Lordship of Christ, and our present apostate culture. But if you were to pick a front line, if you were to say, where is the battle fiercest? Uh, where are the soldiers taking heaviest fire? I don't think any Christian would could doubt who understands and recognizes what's going on in culture that the area of human sexuality and identity is the number one issue today. That is the number one area of challenge. Uh, that is the area in which uh, Christians are facing the greatest degree of marginalization and austerity, uh, hostility. It is the progressive, radical, LGBTQ2++, etc., etc., issue of the day, which has made its way into the churches and is the new defining issue. It's the new defining issue between what constitutes biblical faithfulness and liberalism. In the late 19th and early 20th century, the issue was things like the supernatural, inverted commas, miracles, the resurrection of Jesus. Those were the, the benchmarks that divided the so-called fundamentalists uh, from the liberals. Uh, today, that battlefront has moved. It's not that the resurrection isn't still important, um, but the, the front line of the conflict is now over the issue of human sexuality and identity. And I think the first catastrophic failure here. Uh, just as uh, Nate noted that this is a problem we see with people who are able to teach basic Christian doctrine uh, and uh, teach uh, basic Christian discipleship effectively, uh, like Alistair Begg, somehow falter when it comes to translation. When it comes to the translation of that Christian doctrine into culture, into our concrete actions, into our concrete counsel, into our, uh, our concrete approach to cultural life, they seem to make a mess of it. And um, so Begg's, in my view, his first major failure here is to fail to see, to read the room, if I can put it that way, to, to read the cultural context carefully so that he could appreciate um, the uh, significance and seriousness of the comments and the counsel he was giving. This isn't just any issue. This is the issue of our day from a cultural standpoint. It's the issue. It's the, it's the front line of the battle. And this failure to read the room, and that's why I've been shocked by the fact that he seems shocked by the blowback that he's had from critics. Now, that tells me something very, very important, that, that Alistair, um, for all the value of his ministry to date, has not properly understood the cultural situation and the Christian's relationship to it, that he hasn't got and worked out a developed Christian world and life view from the doctrines of Scripture. Doctrine itself doesn't give you a biblical world and life view. 
It gives you doctrines, but those have to be mapped onto one another and their implications have to be worked out and developed into an effective cultural apologetic. This is what we're called to do in 1 Peter 3, 15. And I think that this is one of the things that in particular the boomer generation of pastors and leaders have generally, not across the board, but generally failed to do effectively in our cultural moment. That, that to me, is the, the first major mistake. He's not read the room. He's not read the culture. He's not read the implications. Hence, his sense of shock at the blowback uh, he has received. He's not recognized where the front line of the struggle is. He's not effectively translated Christian doctrine into cultural life. The second thing that is, um, I think, equally important, and probably the thing that was utmost in your mind, Michael, is that his uh, Begg's working starting point seems to be, from a pastoral perspective, that he does not want this grandmother's relationship with her daughter to be negatively impacted. He doesn't want it to be threatened. He says, above all else, the thing that was foremost and uppermost in his mind, uppermost in his thinking, was that this relationship be preserved. And so the question that I have is, where do we get that idea from scripturally? Where do we get the idea from that our first obligation in a situation like this is to take the side, albeit pastorally, and um, in terms of our, uh, our pastoral counsel and advice, in terms of our practical living, that our first task is not to side with God and his word or his law, uh, but to ensure that somebody's relationship with a non-believer, albeit a relative, is not threatened or undermined. Now, my Bible tells me that my first priority, my number one priority is the glory of God. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. So my first obligation as a Christian is always to ask, what will glorify God in this situation? What will glorify God in this circumstance? Um, I think the, the, the second um, obligation that I have, um, after the, after, although they're involved in each other, after the question of glorifying God, is how do I seek to obey God's word? How do I honor and obey God's law word in this situation? That's my second question in a, in a situation like that. And the third issue then is comes down to, you know, pr the prudential matters that Alistair is talking about, but he starts in the wrong place. He wants to start with a prudential question, uh, a question of approach to the relationship as, as uppermost rather than the glory of God and the word of God. So let's just hear what the word of God says very quickly on this in Luke 14, beginning in verse 25. Um, now, great crowds were traveling with him, so he turned and said to them, this is the Lord Jesus speaking, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, pastorally, that is where I would have begun with this grandmother. Now, recognizing and not setting aside the, the emotional difficulty of this situation, the emotional challenge of that relationship, we're all pastors on this call. Um, between us, we've got decades of pastor experience. I've been pa in pastoral ministry 
um, 17 years uh, in, in uh, thus far in my own um, leadership. And I've had to deal with many different types of circumstances where you need to be sensitive to the emotional, uh, uh, familial difficulties that a person is facing. But this is the text I would have gone to, that part of carrying our cross as Christians, part of what it means to put God first, which is what Jesus is talking about here, he doesn't literally mean we have to go around hating somebody. He means that in terms of when you compare your love for God and even your love for parents and family members, it has to it has to look like hate. If you're not willing to set those relationships aside and consecrate them to God by putting God first, he says you're not worthy of me. Uh, you can't you can't be you literally cannot be my disciple if your first question is how do i preserve my relationships with my relatives the first question has to be god following christ carrying my cross and obeying his word and i think that's where the worldview question michael that you're you've got to the rub off straight away um the heart the root that the, the founding problem is Beg starting point. And as we're going to see, when your starting point is wrong, when you make an error there, then you start to distort other scriptures to try and make it fit with your erroneous starting point. So if you have a non-biblical starting point, you then try and end up manipulating other texts so that it fits with your faulty starting point. And I would say that in this sermon, as he tries to bring, as Nate said, an apologetic, really, for the counsel that he gave, this seems to be the heart of the problem. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that, Joe. And uh, I want to get to the these other clips because I know we have a lot to talk about. But I think you you teed up his starting point, uh, the error of his starting point really well. The, the, the only thing that I would add is that, um, you know, as we've said theologically beg has been a, a a trusted voice for a while and so i know that he can check the, the 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 theological box on this but another starting point error that he makes is is um we we all wrestle with the relationship between god's sovereignty and man's responsibility but this whole sermon seems driven by the idea that the only hope for this um you know grandmother's granddaughter is the kindness of the grandmother, you know, um, which will save her. And I think what, what we have to remember, as you said, Joe, is that God's glory comes first, but we also have to ask the question, who saves? And, and it's not through the, the kindness of Christians that God saves. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So he, he's right in terms of them needing to understand the gospel and understanding forgiveness. But Sometimes what I think some of these sermons do is they sort of push God's sovereignty out of the equation and kind of says there's no hope for these sinners if we are going to withdraw from them at all. And, and I think what I would just say is that, that that seems to indicate a lack of trust in the actual tools God gives us for evangelism. That is not only the sharing of the gospel, but also the prayer of the saints. And so oftentimes it might seem like less practical advice to say, you know, you are to make your stance clear and you are to pray for them. But ultimately, it's God who saves. It's not man. We recognize that man is responsible and God is sovereign in that mystery of those two things working together. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said those 
in scripture, man's responsibility and God's sovereignty never quarrel. And so they ought not in our minds, but we do have to recognize that we are elevating sometimes man's responsibility over God's sovereignty when we give this sort of hyper-practical advice that, um, that, that seems to indicate that there's no hope for sinners outside of, you know, us striving and doing everything that we can to hold on to the relationship. So that was the only other thing that I would kind of add to that. I think we have a couple other uh, clips that you wanted to tee up for us, Michael. Yeah, as we get to that, I, I do want to just linger here briefly on um, another error of first principle. And Joe, this is this is also in the wheelhouse of the Ezra Institute. He says, I wasn't thinking about the nature of the circumstances. And I think this is, again, um, Nate, I think... So, so Joe, I think you've said this is not just any situation. This is the situation. Uh, Nate, you've talked about like the appropriateness of being theological, but then also practical. Well, in order to be practical, you have to think about the nature of things. So again, the difference between going out for coffee, going out for lunch. I like I've personally gone out for lunch with a guy who is. Uh, uh, getting ready to cross dress and was gentle and kind and and truthful with him. The nature of going out for coffee versus the nature of attending a wedding and giving a gift are, are very different things. And so this is going to help people as you're thinking through where are pastors uh, and individuals making errors. One of the first principles um, that you that you need to understand in every situation as you're trying to be practical is you've got to look at the nature of things. Like you, 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 you say, okay, how am I going to please God? How am I going to obey his word? And have I got all of my creational categories? Have I looked at the nature of things accurately? Joe, this is something that you talk regularly about, uh, in, in the realm of Christian philosophy. Um, I'm happy for you to go one more round at it, but I just wanted to point that out. If you want to comment, I, I'd love you to. If you want to move on, that's okay. But this whole nature of things is so important. Mm. Yeah, those are the worldview foundations, and I think you pick up a point there too about uh, the 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 nuance difference between uh, you know going out with somebody for a coffee and going to a wedding. And I think we can pick that up with one of the, the, the clips that's coming up. Okay. All right. So then everybody, now we're going to a second clip. And this second clip is when uh, Beg starts getting into the text. And so this is where Joe was kind of leading us into this next clip. We're saying, okay, he's, he's making an apology for what he's done. He's creating an argument and now he's gone into the text. And so we're going to point out here where, Beg makes a number of false associations in the text. Um, I just preached on this on Sunday uh, as we were in 1 Samuel, uh, because uh, there's a lot of people committing eisegesis in 1 Samuel. But when when you do something called eisegesis, which is where you put your own meaning into the text, or you put yourself too much into the text, and then you draw a conclusion where people might say you can make the Bible say anything. Yes, you can, but you can't do it accurately. You have to ignore historical context, grammatical context, literary context, and biblical context. But when you do that error, which we're going to see Beg doing, all of a sudden, a he says A equals B, 
and that's not true. And that's called a false association. So let's listen to him here now as he is in the parable and he is making associations between uh, people in the Bible, the characters in the parable and the real world. But this is my granddaughter. Now, it's that context then that gave rise to that. Now, I got to come back to the text because that was a deviation. The discovery that he hated to make, the sympathy that he failed to express. You see, what the problem is with this guy is that he views himself as the model son. He actually passes himself off in that way. But he thinks he's the model son, but he's living in the father's house like a slave. That's his terminology. I've never disobeyed your commands. I've been serving you. You see, the Pharisees were committed to slavish outward obedience, while inwardly they were estranged from God. And they said to one another, if only we can make sure that we don't get ourselves contaminated by any of that, then surely we'll be in a perfect position. But look at the way the fellow operates. And Jesus is telling this story in the awareness of the fact that it is these religious leaders who are opposed to him who will eventually kill him. Okay, so here we have the parable of the prodigal son. He's talking about the uh, elder son. Uh, I just want to read a few things that he said up until this point. In the sermon, he said he's got one son who is lost far away and the other is lost close up. God is a seeking God. And then regarding the older brother, he talks about unless someone understands the forgiveness of God, he doesn't have the capacity to forgive others. And then here, right in that clip, he says he views himself as a model son. So he, he is clearly teeing up, associating the elder son with someone who is unforgiving, with someone who doesn't want God to seek other people, um, who doesn't understand the forgiveness of God and thinks very highly of himself. On those areas, I think he's not far off at all. But then there are some other associations that he's making, other implications he's making here. Joe, why don't you take uh, take us from here on this clip? Mm -hmm. Well, I think what Alistair is beginning to do with the text here is he's trying to build a um, a, a set up a parallel situation in which um, his response, his counsel concerning the uh, queer wedding is the forgiving response. It's the way that the, the elder brother should have uh, responded. Um, but he, interestingly, it wasn't in that particular clip, but he says in another place in the sermon that the concern of the son was not to sully himself uh, by going to the, he heard this commotion, the elder brother, hears this commotion and he doesn't want, Beg says he doesn't want to sully himself. So he, so he calls a servant to go and, um, uh, find out what's going on. Um, and uh, the implication very clearly, if you listen through to the sermon is that the, 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 the people who take a different perspective to him on this practical situation, are like the elder brother. They don't want to sully themselves with these sinners. Um, and, uh, uh, and and they are therefore like, they're like Pharisees. And you've just heard him talk about the, the Pharisee there. Now, first of all, 
there's no implication indication in the text at all that the elder brother um knew what was going on and didn't want to sully himself the reason he sends a servant is he actually inquires uh he was in the field he heard music and dancing so in verse 26 so he summoned one of the servants and asked what these things meant uh and then he's told your brother is here and so on so um the, 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 he's starting to sort of build a or trying to build a case as the, the sermon progresses that we have uh, this group of people who um, take a different take on this, that the, the ones who want to condemn and he contrasts compassion and condemnation in the sermon. Uh, this is the, 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 the dichotomy he's very keen to emphasize at the end of the sermon when he even says, you know, if it's a choice between coming down on the side of condemnation or compassion, I'm coming down on the side of compassion. Uh, we'll talk about that false dichotomy a bit later. Um, but the, his concern is to show that the reaction of the elder brother, he's a Pharisee. Um, and uh, that the the he didn't want to sully himself, didn't want to get touched by the sin that was going on in the house. That's why he sent the servant. Well, there's actually no indication of that at all. He doesn't know what's going on. That's why he sends the servant. When he hears what's going on, he's upset. And as you've said, not everything that Berg has said about the elder brother is wrong. There is unforgiveness. There's resentment. Um, there's the sense of having the wrong attitude. He doesn't see himself as the son and heir that he is. His father says to him, everything I have is already yours, but you should join me in rejoicing that this, this son of mine is, who was lost is now found. We'll come to that point in just a second. Um, but the, 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 the concern, the first f- false equivalence or false association here is the, the association actually of uh, those who would differ with Beg on the issue of going to these weddings um, and their identification as Pharisees over against Beg, who's really putting himself in the place of the father, like a grandfather who's welcoming and going, you know, he's going the extra mile. And this is what he's counseling others to do. show compassion, go the extra mile. Don't be a Pharisee, be like the father. But the sin of the Pharisees, he actually gets all wrong. He gets it all wrong. The sin of the Pharisee was not that he was punctiliously concerned with obedience to the word of God and that being involved with any sinful people would sully him. That was not the concern of the Pharisee. The Pharisee's concern was to fence God's law, was to actually uh, create a system of human tradition and custom that would precisely allow him to touch and be engaged with things that were in fact uh, wrong, whether matters of the heart or um, or externals. Um, because as Jesus said of the Pharisees, Ye, you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. He tells them, tells them you make void the law by your tradition and many such things you do. So the Pharisees' concern was not with, I really want to obey God and I don't want to be touched. I don't want to touch the unclean thing because, in fact, Paul expressly tells us not to touch the unclean thing. And he says, actually, that we shouldn't even talk about the things that the children of darkness do in secret, that we, uh, that we should have nothing to do with such things. So 
it, it, so we're not to, but the Pharisees' concern was that if you can create a fence for the law, then you can do any, for example, give you a concrete example in the area of sexuality and marriage. They asked Jesus the question about divorce, didn't they? Well, what was the motivation in asking about divorce? They weren't asking what's God's best, what's God's intention in the law, what did God really want with marriage? There were two schools of thought on divorce. And they wanted Jesus to arbitrate between these two schools, one of which allowed the Pharisee to send his wife away for almost anything, just saying, I divorced thee, I divorced thee twice, and she she was gone. And Jesus says, it's because of your hardness of hearts that Moses even allowed this. So the Pharisee's concern was always to find a way around true obedience to the law of God by having an oral fence around it that gave um, the appearance of being interested in obedience to the law, but actually being able to violate it. That's what the Pharisees were interested in. So first, Beg gets the sin of the Pharisee completely wrong. And um, he he's partly right about the elder brother, um, an, an unwillingness to forgive, sense of resentment, uh, a, a, a lack of recognition of the meaning of the gospel in the elder son, that, that he was already an heir. He, everything that the father had was already his. And then his, and the problem, the fact that there's a real problem if, because of course, Jesus is in part getting at the issue here that, as he did repeatedly in his parables, that the Pharisees were were resentful that even that other people were being called, that even Gentiles and sinners and people who uh, weren't seen by them as being um, su- sufficiently um, outwardly righteous, um, that these were being, especially Gentiles, that these were being welcomed in and and called by God to be his people, even prostitutes and so on. Um, um, uh, how can how can this possibly be? Uh, so there's a lack of recognition of the the, the fullness and the of, of the meaning of the gospel, self righteousness. This is an issue, and so on. So uh, he gets some of it right, but he muddles it, and he and, and and therefore he messes it up with this attempt. As I said, he gets his starting point wrong at the beginning. Therefore, now he's gently trying to really eisegesis. He's trying to exegete a parable, uh, which is easy to do violence to. Um, because he thinks that actually here I can steer this in, into a way that makes it look like it's a justification of my position. But in fact, um, it really isn't. And, um, and so the, the, to, to then identify really as he does the, the Pharisee with Christians who would take a different view, that if you would be opposed to going to these weddings, you're nothing but a Pharisee who doesn't want to sully yourself uh, with the with the with with sinners and with the nasty world. That is not. That's more than uncharitable. That's theologically erroneous. It's completely wrong um, to stand for truth on the issue of human identity, sexuality, marriage, and not to endorse and celebrate something that God calls an abomination is not to act as a Pharisee. Um, and uh, that's why I said, I think in a previous week, you know, can you imagine Jesus being at the wedding of Cana if it had been between two homosexuals and sorting out the wine list for them? That's just not going to happen. Jesus would not put his imprimatur of authority on that. The Very quickly then, before we I throw it back to you guys, um, the thing about the prodigal son, of course, the story that I don't know, it, it, it boggles the mind how this, how he doesn't deal with this or actually see this point. 
But the whole issue of the welcome of the father, which he gets to, and Michael, forgive me if I'm jumping ahead and you've got a clip on this. I don't think we have, but the welcome. Yeah, the, 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 the fact that the father sees his son while he's a long way off and he goes out to him, the, the part of the point, part of the central message of the prodigal son is that the, that the son, the prodigal, comes to the end of himself. So we know that the, the, the elder brother, he's right there. In some respects, he's far away, even though he's close. The prodigal son is far away in another sense. Um, and the, the key to the, to, to the story is that the prodigal comes to the end of himself. The, 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 the text is explicit about that. He spends everything on wild living, on, on foolish living. He spends the inheritance. He ends up, in the context of famine, broke and feeding pigs. And he's not even able to eat the husks that the pigs are eating. And it's there in the, at the, when he's hit rock bottom that he comes to his senses, Jesus says in the parable. And he says, it's not like this in my father's house, even for the servants, even for the slaves. So I am going to go to my father and I'm going to tell him the truth. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. So just make me one of the, 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 the hired hands. Make, make me a slave in your house because I'm not worthy. Now, that's repentance. That's the nature and meaning of the repentance. You come to the end of yourself and you make your way home. And Jesus is saying the Father's love and compassion is so lavish that even on the journey before you actually are back in the house, God is going to see you coming. And he sends, and he comes out to meet you. And he comes running as no Middle Eastern father would because you would have to pick up the hem of your garment and run. That was seen as undignified. That is the embrace of the compassion of God. When we come to the end of ourselves, we say, I'm not, I'm not worthy. And then we make our way back, and then the Father sees us, and then the, the, the ring and the, the robe of righteousness, and, and then the celebration in Father's house. That's when that happens. The Father does not go into the distant land to attend the son's wild parties to show his support. He doesn't go to uh, wherever the, the son may be involved in foolish or debauched activity, whether there were or weren't prostitutes. Alistair Begg raises the question. Um, whatever the wild living was, it was godless living. The father doesn't go and say, I need to support my lost son. I need to know that I love him and that I validate him. So I'm going to go there. I'm going to go out find him in the distant land of apostasy and disobedience and sin and rebellion just so that he knows how kind I am. That is not the position of the father, and that's not the story of the prodigal son. How um, Pastor Begg misses this or overlooks it or doesn't see it in his attempt to justify his approach does astonish me. I don't know how he got there and doesn't see this, and I know Nate has an additional comment on this that I think will be will be actually helpful. Yeah, one of the things that I noticed as I was listening to sort of uh, Begg's apologetic is um, kind of rereading the story of the prodigal son, which I think is familiar to many of us who have been pastoring for a good number of years, um, was, uh, you know, in uh, the first five verses, you have uh, sort of the, the recklessness of the son. And in verse 16, 
Uh, Joe, you alluded to this. It says he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And then this line really stuck out to me. And no one gave him anything. And then the next verse, verse 17, new paragraph, but when he came to himself, and as you said, that's sort of a story or a, a, a picture of salvation and heart regeneration. But I thought it was interesting, right? No one gave him anything. Father did not show up at that time, right? The, fa- the, the, the father knew what was best for the son, and that was leaving the son to the sovereignty and the judgment of God. The worst thing, I've, 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 I've said this when I've preached on the, the prodigal son, when you think through our, our current system, um, the worst thing that anybody, the most unloving thing anybody could have done for that son in that moment was to give him a handout. And, and you know, if, if we're drawing parallels to the advice that Beg gave, the worst possible thing that it, uh, in, the most unloving thing anybody could have done was come and support him in his sinfulness. He understood that he left the home, right? He understood that he he walked away. He understood the father's position. The father did not have to, as you say, come and, and involve himself in the licentious living. Um, but instead, it says, no one gave him anything, right? That father trusted the sovereignty of God, right? And, and was ready to welcome his son with forgiveness and open arms. But the, the, that just really stood out to me because I think that he's, he's, as you said, put this whole story backwards. And if you were to rewrite the story of the prodigal son um, using the advice of, of Pastor Begg, then it would be that we, whether it's the older brother or the father or anybody else, ought to have run out to that foreign land and gathered up their son or at least sat there so that he knew there was an open door for him at any time he wanted to come back home. But the text not only doesn't say that, it actually has this line, no one gave him anything. And that's part of what God used to bring him to repentance. Yeah. So folks, when, when you're trained on how to preach, one of the very first lectures that you come across is right message, wrong text, or uh, wrong message, right text. And so that that's where we're trying to draw here all of these false associations. And so I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up this section simply to say, so we have a clear uh, false association that beg puts the emphasis and focus of the story on the elder brother and what Beg is trying to build is a case for going and participating in the event. He's doing that by falsely associating that action with compassion. So he gets to talk about compassion, which is a part of the story. The elder brother is confronted with, you should be celebrating with this return of the sinner, but it's a false association. Um, I'm in a church, served there a long time. Worst person in the community comes in has repented of sin, tells us their crazy story. And I say, I've been pining for God for a really long time. I I don't even want to hear your story and I don't even care. That's the type of, of lack of compassion. That's not, that's being confronted. And this whole connection between going, the son doesn't want to sully himself and then ignoring Joe, as Joe mentioned that the father doesn't go to the party. It's just falsely equating the definition of compassion with certain actions that are not in 
the text and also falsely associating the, the concept of love. And then, of course, because this is the right message from the wrong text or the wrong message from the right text, this whole inference that begs critics are the Pharisees and their problem is a lack of compassion is the is the major, major problem. And so, folks, you can just see how easy you can just take this. And I think, Joe, you said you can harm the text. I think that's a great way of saying it. Folks, if someone, let's just be very clear. If someone is repentant of sin, go and celebrate that this lost child was found. <laughs> go do it. Celebrate with them. Celebrate with the Lord. Uh, have a heart of compassion. That is uh, something that we can learn from the text, but it does not mean go bask in their in the production of of their sin. Okay, so now, guys, this is where I think I've never heard Alistair Begg uh, be so unfair, and I've never heard him be so un uh, uh, um, be uh, not careful in this next section. And he actually brings up a point in this next section where he talks about pastors preaching. And if they're preaching or teaching publicly on an issue, that is actually a marker of secret sin. And I want to share with you guys a personal story about this. I remember when I was just two years into ministry, I was in my very first church. I was interning as a, as a youth ministry director. And the senior pastor got up and preached a fantastic sermon on um, sexuality. And I can remember the moment almost as just as clear as day. The sermon was touching on something similar to this. And we were having a family dinner. And on the way to family dinner, I said, wow, that was a clear word from the Lord. That was, that was great. Of course, I'm just a young Bible college student, first year or second year. And one of my elder family members uh, looked at me and said, you know, I wonder if he struggles with that because when people talk a lot about stuff, they themselves usually struggle with it. And the irony was, this was a sore point in her own life and just immediately used to dismiss the text. That stuck with me. It sticks with me. And the fact that Beg now has gone and done it is, uh, is, is really problematic. Here, I'm going to play the clip. In verse 29, I never disobeyed you. You never gave me a goat. No, I, I didn't get what I deserved. But this your son can't even bring him to say, my brother, this your son, actually this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, who said anything about prostitutes? Pharisees often complain loudly of sins they would be quite interested in committing themselves. Be very, very careful when you hear your pastor or your teacher, whoever it is, lambasting a certain area of life, especially in the realm of morality. 
time and time again, you will discover that that loud protestation actually, sadly, tragically, proved to be a very thin smokescreen for what was actually going on in the hearts of these people. So first of all, I would like to go on record that I have never desired to dress like a woman. <laughs> I would just like to go. I've seen you in some. I've seen you in some pretty, pretty pink T-shirts at times. Don't, uh, all I have Michael. to say, you <laughs> call them salmon. All I have to do is call, say salmon <laughs> pants to you, buddy. But look, <laughs> guys, this is just. Um, this is just so dangerous. He he literally says, "Your pastor." Um, yeah. Like, so this man has been given a platform by individuals because of his faithful handling of the text in other areas. And so now, and, and you got, you and I know, guys, we, we struggle with the same thing where um, some people come to us and say, well, my pastor says this, but you guys say this. Like there, this is a natural tension. And this man says, if your pastor is taking a clear stand, it is a smoke screen. It's proved itself time and time again for as a smoke screen for sin. And so, you know, th I, this is so hurtful to the North American church, to pastors who have said to their people, go and listen to beg. Yeah. You to know, be honest with you, this um, kind of makes me like, for anybody, any any of our listeners who have ever volunteered in the church nursery or or had young children, um, you see often the tendency that when when a child is struck, their immediate tendency is to strike back. And this, more than anything else in the sermon, struck me as a moment where Alistair Begg was just hitting back. It, it's this this was this seemed and and I don't want I don't want to impute motives to him. But this, it just seemed like this was, um, I, I just think it's irresponsible, uh, and I'll at least leave it at that, because what he's essentially doing is undermining every local pastor's ability to preach about and condemn sin, sin from the pulpit without being suspected of being a hypocrite. And uh, I, I don't think that's in the text at all. I think he's reaching real far with the whole idea of prostitutes. He's imputing to the older brother the same thing he's imputing to every every one of his critics. And I think this is immensely irresponsible. And and part of my response to Alistair Begg would be like, show me in Scripture where that's true. Like wait, like show me show me where Jesus teaches that those who condemn things the loudest. Because I think, as Joe said, going back to his whole definition of the sin of the Pharisees, he's got that wrong in the first place. So I just think this was incredibly irresponsible of him. Yeah, I think that's right, Nate. Um, I was I was thoroughly disappointed by this. It, it, it's an awful moment. That's the only way to describe it. It's an awful moment in this sermon. It's an awful moment in his ministry, in my view. One of the one of the really sad things about this is that he has taken precisely the line of argument that the homosexual lobby use. That the that the queer movement uses as its barb against its critics. So if a, if a man uh, or a father somewhere dares to put his head over the parapet and say, "I think this is wrong. This should not be happening. This shouldn't be being taught in the school. This should. I'm not having this taught to my son or my children. I'm not having this uh, infect the church." 
Um, they immediately accuse the person of being a closet homosexual, somebody who secretly desires these sorts of sexual sins that actually they really want to try them um, and they should try them and this sort of thing. So he's actually taken the basic argument of the uh, of the LGBT lobby within the, uh, especially within the, uh, the, the church, um, so-called. Um, within the um, the synagogue of Satan that drapes the rainbow flag everywhere, he's taken their argument and he's leveled it against fellow evangelicals, um, fellow uh, believers, just because they've had the courage to criticize and challenge him on this council. And um, I suspect, I don't doubt, that some of the, the initial feedback that he received, some of the criticism he received, was not measured uh, was not um, uh, scriptural. Maybe he got some some nasty comments on social media and some sort of hateful stuff. I, I get that. You know, any of us who have to live in any of the social media spaces, you know, in ministry, know that you say things truthfully and clearly. Um, you you get blowback. That's just that's just the way it is. Now, if you make um, an error like this, you're going to get some people who don't articulate things well and they're insensitive and rude and aggressive and so on and so forth. Um, but to impute this kind of a Freudian, Jungian motive, basically, to pick up secular psychology um, and, and basically sexualize the intention of his critics uh, as a sort of a, a closet desire to practice homosexuality or to practice transvestism or whatever, this is astonishing. And it's an appalling moment um, in this sermon. Um, and um, I actually think that, you know, he was asked to climb down from his first comments. Uh, I think this sermon needs a greater degree of repentance than the original offense. Uh, what he's done here is very, very serious. I'll leave it I at agree. that. We've got, some more, we've got a little bit more to get to in the next uh, half hour. Now, some folks, especially in the American context, and what we've also just seen recently in the North American context, in, in, actually the global context, some people do experience uh, insincere and uh, um, men, men who have a lack of integrity in the pulpit. You know, there there is a real need to be a discerning listener. And it would be perfectly acceptable to say, if if you have a if you have a pastor who will never repent, if you have a pastor who is always seen in his in his stories, like actually this is so common. I don't know if you guys come across it, but young pastors very often tell stories about themselves where they're the hero, and and it's like I don't know how many times I've gone up to a young twenty one year old twenty three year old preacher and just put my hand on his back and said so. You understand that you told that story, and um, in in the, the 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 scripture you're dealing with, God was the hero, and then in the illustration that you shared in order to illustrate the point, you were the hero, and so you kind of made yourself look a little godlike in that moment. Did can you hear how that would? And it's amazing how that little bit of feedback really helps guys go, oh yeah. Like so an inexperienced pastor or uh or a fraudulent pastor can get up there and blow smoke and be proud and be all of these problems. 
The reality is, though, um, to Im- impute this on every pastor who has a, a, a desire to lead their flock sincerely, sincerely in these cultural times is 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 really problematic for him. Okay, so last clip that I've got prepared, and Joe, this plays right into your hand. Um, Beg goes on to say, hey, look, and I have to admit that as I've reflected on all of this, I'm just not an American fundamentalist. In fact, I am a much more nuanced um, Scott who has been influenced by British evangelicals. Here's the clip. But in that case, I answered in that way, and I would not answer in any other way, no matter what anybody says on the internet as of the last 10 days. If that were the case, I would never— if that were the case, I would never— I should never have said it in the first place. If people want me to recant and to repent, to repent? I I, I repent daily, because I say a lot of things that I shouldn't say. I mean, check with Sue, but the fact of the matter is, I'm not ready to repent over this. I don't have to. Now, let me say something that would be a little explosive. (laughs) I've lived here for 40 years, and those who know me best know that when we talk theology, when we talk stuff, I've always said I am a little bit out of sync with the American evangelical world for this reason that I am the product of British evangelicalism, represented by John Stott, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Eric Alexander, Sinclair Ferguson, Derek Prime. I am a product of that. I have never been a product of American fundamentalism. I come from a world in which it is possible for people to actually grasp the fact that there are nuances in things. Those of you who are lawyers understand this. Everything is not so categorically clear that if you put one foot out of this box, you've got to be removed from the box forever. And so, I went back to prove to myself that that really is the case, and I dug out a book that I've had since I was in my 20s, uh, Christ the Controversialist by John Stott. Okay, now— I wasn't planning on playing any more of that clip. If you want me to play more, guys, just let me know. Uh, Joe, I know that when we talked about this, after you and I listened to this sermon, you had a lot to say about this point. And I actually thought it's humorous because this is the time where, Joe, I thought maybe you'd be like, of course, like, of course our Brits, us Brits are better. (laughs) So uh, you got a lot to say about this one, Joe, jump in there. Well, first of all, um, it's embarrassing. I mean, and I think he's actually humiliating himself here, and I don't think he realizes it. Um, and 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 I think you know, look, I'm British. I'm an Englishman, not a Scotsman. But this isn't the beginning of a joke. Um, <laughs> the, um, the 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 simple fact is uh, is that to to I find it shocking, actually, and I think really uh, the best starting point would be to say I apologize on behalf of all British evangelicals for these remarks. 
that that this is a I, I can't understand how a man who's lived in in America amongst American evangelicals for forty years could make such an obvious insult to them. Um, apparently, his own congregation doesn't feel insulted, but this is this is this is an insult. It's not even a particularly um, well masked insult. Um, it's an insult that suggests that American Christians, American evangelicals, are stupid. Uh, that they are not sophisticated, and you know, uh, apparently there's some lawyers in his congregation. Wow, oh, I'm impressed, right? Um, and uh, that these lawyers would would of course understand that there's such a thing called nuance. But of course, American Christians, American evangelicals, they they don't understand nuance. Um, well, there's 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 a few things um, uh, to be said here. Um, first of all. Uh, well, actually, let me come to that one last. Um, and if I forget, remind me to come back to to to, to nuance at the uh, as my last remark. But uh, but but first of all, um, calling upon the dead like Martin Lloyd Jones and John Stott to your defence to give the impression to your hearers that Lloyd Jones and John Stott would have advised parishioners to go to a queer wedding is disingenuous. It's disingenuous. Um, it's it's intellectually dishonest. Lloyd Jones would turn in his grave uh, if it was suggested that he would have counselled people. In fact, I don't think that Lloyd Jones would have been in his lifetime capable of imagining the whole idea of a queer wedding. It wasn't on the agenda uh, in his lifetime. There weren't civil partnerships, homosexuality. It was illegal to teach it in schools. Um, it only shortly, but for much of his ministry, it was a criminal offence. So the notion that you can sort of draw um, Lloyd Jones to your defence in this, I, I, which he doesn't even provide any quote or justification of that. He, he quotes Stott later, and I think Nate's got a remark to, uh, to make on that. Um, so I'll stay off of that. But first of all, I think that's disingenuous. disingenuous. Um, second of all, I would like to ask Alistair, um, how's British evangelicalism doing? Well, I live in Britain. Uh, I lived in North America 20 years, but I actually live in Britain. Um, and uh, I lived in Britain 30 years before I left for, for North America. I'm back in Britain now. And I can tell you that British evangelicalism is in a woeful condition. As a generalization, with a few exceptions, it is in a woeful condition. It, uh, and we are capitulating left and right on these issues culturally. Organizations and movements for the, from the Church of Eng England to um, to the FIEC to to even some of the new church movements that you would least expect are beginning to cave on these kinds of issues. Some dramatically, some subtly. Um, evangelical Methodism has collapsed. So British evangelicalism, with all its so-called nuance and irenicism, is uh, actually in a far worse state than American evangelicalism today. On the whole, that would be my observation as somebody who's lived on both sides of the both sides of the pond. So, a sort of snobbish and pompous attitude uh, towards uh, Americans and American evangelicalism, as though they can't discern nuance like the British, is false. And for, for a start, because I know many Americans and work with many, and they do know exactly what nuance looks like. Uh, and second of all, British evangelicalism today is in a hopeless uh, mess. 
um, and desperately needs God to move in 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 the midst of it. And I don't think that uh, that great names, good names in um, British evangelism, far from perfect. Uh, Lloyd Jones was heavily pietistic in my view. Um, and uh, Lloyd Jones and Stott didn't even agree about what should happen in terms of Christians' response within the Church of England. Um, so it's a far, far from perfect. But the notion that there are these sort of this thing called British evangelicalism over here that uh, discerns nuance and American evangelicalism over here that can't uh, is a very, very sad commentary. Second of all, it is Begg, ironically, who doesn't see the nuance, not his American critics. Um, and let me just explain what I mean by that. What the discerning and, and uh, competent and constructive uh, critics have been saying, which, by the way, nowhere in this sermon does actually Alistair, Be Alistair Begg actually address the criticism or its character and nature, where it's actually coming from. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't actually deal with it. Um, the, the critics have pointed out, including us, that there is a great difference between going for coffee, having lunch, having somebody over to your home, providing hospitality to somebody who is in a sinful lifestyle, whether that be fornication, adultery, um, homosexuality, some sort of homosexual or trans union, um, that there is a significant difference, a nuanced difference <laughs> between that and the significance of attendance and witnessing and giving gifts of celebration at a homosexual wedding or a queer, uh, queer theory, a queer wedding. And actually, it's, it's Begg, for whatever reason, Pastor Begg, who cannot see the nuance here. Because, of course, his argument has been that, while well, Jesus ate with publicans and sinners. Yes, he did. But as I said, the wedding at Cana was not a trans wedding. And, and, and here's the critical thing. And, and as a British evangelical of all people, Alistair Begg knows this and he understands it. The, the traditional service in Britain that still holds in most parish churches across the country and in most Orthodox churches across the country, the, um, when a couple is going to get married, and, and I know we did this in Canada too. The bans of marriage, the bans of marriage are published in the church that they're to get married in. Usually they'll be published in the church that they live in, in the parish church or the area church that they live in. Um, as well as if it's a different church they're going to get married in, they have to be published there as well. In nonconformist churches, uh, very often it will be published in the churches of both partners of the, of the, of the bridegroom and the groom. So in the traditional um, uh, uh, parish setting in Britain, if you are getting married in the church, the bans of marriage, and that is an ancient, it's an ancient legal right, by the way, it's an ancient legal tradition in the, um, it has a Middle English origin, bans, it means proclamation. So you're proclaiming, the minister is proclaiming that these two people are going to be married. Um, it's a, pro a proclamation because marriage is a public act. It's central, as we've said in our last podcast, to civil and social order. It's also a legal fact. So in England, it's a legal requirement that the bans of marriage be published. They're published on three consecutive Sundays. And the minister actually says, and I will, I will read it to you. Um, 
he says, I published the bands of marriage between uh, A and B. This is the first or the second or the third time of asking if any of you know cause or just impediment why these two persons should not be joined together in holy matrimony. You are to declare it. That's from the Book of Common Prayer in 1662. Or this is the first, second, third time of asking if anyone, if any of you know any reason in law why they may not marry uh, each other, you are to declare it. That's from the, the uh, order from the, the year 2000. So that's the updated version. So are we seriously, and by the way, then in the wedding service itself, and I remember when I got married in an, an Anglican church in England, uh, uh, where I was actually serving at the time, the minister, in the service itself, it's, a, it's an awkward pause. It happens in Canada, did many weddings in Canada. It's the same awkward pause. If anyone knows any reason why these two should not be lawfully wedded, yours to speak now or forever hold your peace. And there's usually a few moments of slightly awkward silence and then a sigh of relief, and then you get on with the, the wedding. Are we seriously to say that in terms of God's law and Christian witness, we could sit and listen to those bans of marriage being published or that question being asked and not say something? Now, that's the nuance that Pastor Begg doesn't seem to be getting. The difference between dinner, coffee, hospitality with sinners and participating in what, remember, is the recapitulation Every time somebody gets married, we are seeing a recapitulation of what God does in Eden when he married our first parents. The father of the bride brings the bride to the husband. That's the nuance, Alistair. The nuance is that there's a difference between a normal, um, uh, a normal social relationship, uh, a normal social friendship, a normal social gathering, um, a, a normal social interaction with an unbeliever and the recapitulation of God's ordinance, his creation ordinance of marriage, and how in Britain and, of course, in America and in Canada, and don't forget most of Alistair Begg's audience is American, they're paying his bills, or at least they're funding the radio program and all of that. I mean, let's remember who's who's listening. Um, this is the significance of marriage that we're reminded of every time. And so to say that if you won't endorse that, you're a Pharisee, or to imply that you're a Pharisee, lacking compassion, um, you're, the, you're an older brother, that if you oppose that um, uh, as a prophet of God in the pulpit, and you speak about it, and, and perhaps worse, Michael or Nate, perhaps worse, if you talk about it publicly in the culture, you secretly to participate in the sin of, secretly want to participate in the, in the sin of homosexuality. You're a Pharisee, you want to participate in homosexuality secretly, um, uh, and that you lack compassion. These charges are very, very serious. They're very significant. Think about the chilling impact that this has. So I would say, no, Alistair, forgive me, brother, as a fellow Brit, uh, it is you who doesn't understand the nuance. It's you. It's not British evangelicalism that's wise and nuanced and you're the inheritor of this beautiful tradition and these silly Americans don't get it. No, brother, in this situation, you don't understand and, and you don't understand the nuance. Now, God needs to help American evangelicals and he needs to help British evangelicals. But as an observer of both continents and somebody who lives in Britain and ministers in Britain and in America, our condition in Britain at the moment, brother, is a lot more serious.
So if we can listen to faithful witnesses in North America within the evangelical church, um, perhaps we can actually help our British cousins as well. Um, that's the irony of this comment. It's a very sad one. It's very, very disappointing, but there's a certain irony to it. Yeah. I, uh, it's interesting that, um, as you said, that he's sort of um, bringing in his uh, witnesses um, to sort of justify this advice. And he uses uh, a couple of dead ministers who, who I do have a great deal of respect for. And, and uh, I, I don't think we have time to get to this, but later on in the sermon near the end, he actually pulls out his cell phone and begins to read text messages and, and tweets that he received in, as, as, as if sort of the, the counsel that he received from random nameless people uh, was better than the measured criticism that he's receiving from some pastors who disagree with him. And, and as you said, Joe, I, I think it's, it, it's incredible to me that one of the main thrusts of his entire sermon is that people have been unfair in their criticism to him to then turn around and accuse all of those who would criticize such things with more uh, enthusiasm than him as being closet homosexuals or closet trannies. Um, and then also to kind of browbeat all of his American listeners uh, who, uh, who are the vast majority of his, um, his listeners, by the way, um, as sort of unnuanced dumb Americans is just, uh, is just an, an incredible. I think one of the things, so he does quote, and, and you stop the clip before he quotes it, Michael, but in that, uh, he does quote from John Stott. I have, I happen to have the book on my shelf and I, I kind of went and looked and, and not only would I say that, that he badly messed the context of the stock quote, um, but I mean, Stott is writing in, in context there about divorce and remarriage in the church between a man and a woman. It has nothing to do with homosexual marriage, has nothing to do with transgenderism. And, and this is part of the problem with pastors who, again, struggle with the application of their theology to real world cultural issues. I think it was you, Joe, who earlier said, like, he's missing the thing. Like, this is the hill to die on in our, like, this is the, the courage that that pastors have to um, uh, cultivate in this time is to stand against the LGBT activism. And, and so for him to kind of miss that, that cultural, the cultural significance of what he's saying is, is incredible. But what you cannot do is go back to a different pastor from a different era who's applying biblical principles to a different culture and then, and then bring them forward and apply it to a completely different cultural issue, to a completely different culture. And, and this is part of the problem when pastors are not equipped well to speak into the culture as they do this often. I'm, I'm thankful, and we can learn so much from John Stott and, and, and guys like Martin Lloyd-Jones, who we also quoted, and, and the reformers are dealing with their own cultural issues, and we can quote them. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, wonderful cultural analysis in, in a lot of his work, but we don't take it with a one-to-one -one ratio and say, this is what he said about divorce and remarriage, and here's how we can apply it one-to-one -to, -one to uh, attending a trans wedding. It's just, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. And quite frankly, if you want to, if you want to use the label of Pharisee, what I would say is that one of the things that Jesus chastised the Pharisee the most for, outside of what you described, Joe, in terms of their uh, building a fence around the law of God, one of the things that Jesus chastised them for the most was their inability to read the signs of the times. Right? He said, "You, you, you know." 
how to read the sky and you know when a storm is coming, but you're, you're completely incapable of, of uh, reading the signs of the times. And so the fact that, that Beg actually misses how it, significant this cultural battle is actually shows that he's in, in at least that particular way guilty of, um, of uh, sort of uh, guilty of the same thing that Jesus often chastised the Pharisees about. So I would just say you cannot evoke the cultural application of a pastor from a previous era to uh, and apply it to a completely different cultural issue and and use him as some sort of authority. I want to I want to want to jump in on this really quick and then I'll pass it off to Joe. Guys, talking about the context, talking about uh, bringing these voices from the past. I, I want to give you a very current picture of where we are actually at in the cultural moment. And that is right now, as I am reading a Kentucky bill um, that was just, um, it's a partisan bill that was just submitted by six Republicans and introduced on January 26th of 2024. And I'm so thankful for this bill. It's called House Bill 390 because they are amending um, they are amending Kentucky's uh, Bill of Human Rights or Bill of uh, Rights of Women. And they are having to go through the previous bill to actually define what a woman is. And so as we, Joe and I talked last week, I'm in this situation where I have a man cross-dressing trying to access the same change room that my daughter uses on a daily basis. And this is where we are at. And I'm so thankful. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get behind these, uh, these um, state Republicans and try to help as much as I can. But they are literally going through saying what a boy means, that when the word equal is defined, it does not mean same or identical with respect to equality of sexes, where they're defining female. And this is in order to protect um, the spaces uh, of opposite sex. So this the, the purpose of this is to permit separation of the sexes if the interest of the maintaining safety, privacy, and, of, and fairness. So this is where we are actually at. We're, we're needing uh, pastors, we're needing lawmakers to stand up and say, <laughs> a woman is actually a woman. So th this is very critical and I'm, I'm, I'm so important that we're talking about this. Joe, why don't you close us off with some closing thoughts? Yeah, I think um, both of those uh, uh, comments are actually uh, really important. The, an illustration of where we are, where lawmakers are struggling. Imagine you've got a lawmaker in your congregation, and I'm sure there are in many churches, legislatures, looking for guidance from their pastors on these issues. Um, if they speak out on the issue, are they Pharisees? If they want to write this into the law, uh, is it because they secretly want to maybe practice those those sins themselves? Uh, you can see the chilling effect that this could have. And I think um, that's why I think that the sermon, the second error, is worse than the first in this instance. The attempted justification is so bad that I think he sadly made the situation worse. And I, I was really hoping, because he, he, in part, the sermon is a bit schizophrenic, because by the end, he's kind of saying, look, all I was trying to do was, in a grandfatherly way, 
offer some some time limited counsel to this particular person of how they should act. And there was some even on, he said, on my own pastoral team who disagreed with the advice that I gave. Okay, Alistair. Well, do you know what? Why not just say, you know what? Uh, I, in a, in a moment of grandfatherly pastoral care and without sufficient thought, I gave a bad piece of advice here. Everyone, you know, I'm, I'm orthodox on sexuality and marriage and identity. And on reflection, having listened to some careful critics and fellow pastors and having listened to some on my own team, um, I, I recognize that actually this was bad advice. Uh, and actually I could really inadvertently, seriously mislead people here. His, he would have gone up in people's estimation so much. What, what a wonderful opportunity, as Nate started our program with, to, to show a godly response to legitimate criticism, to legitimate criticism as a leader, as, as, as a, having a, a large following, of being a public figure in the Christian world. What a, what a great opportunity. And it was so sad to me to hear him respond in the end the way he did and to say, you know, well, but in the end, if it comes to a choice between compassion and condemnation, I'm coming down on the side of compassion every time and almost finishing the sermon with a totally false dichotomy that cannot be substantiated in scripture as if um, making righteous judgments, which God requires, which the Lord Jesus requires of us, don't judge by human standards, but Jesus says, but judge righteous judgment as though there is a dichotomy between that and compassion. This is refuted by the words of Jesus himself. And when I was listening to it, John 3 came to me again, John 3, beginning at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This then is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. And so here you see in one of the most famous passages of Scripture, because of course verse 16 is, For God so loved that he gave. We're told that the compassion of God, by the Lord Jesus himself, the compassion of God is not in contradiction to God's condemnation of those who reject the light, who, who reject the Son, and who... Uh, will not come into the light. Why? Interestingly enough, because their deeds were evil, because anyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids it. And what are we told in Scripture? What is the calling of the Christian? To be salt and light. That actually we are the light of the world in the Lord Jesus Christ. We shine a light onto these situations. And so this, this evangelifish false dichotomy between righteous judgment and compassion uh, is something that sadly Beg repeats here, and it's the problem of pietism, and it's the problem that Nate alluded to earlier, that when it comes to cultural exegesis in, uh, alongside scriptural exegesis, the translation 
of our faith into culture, we have been so sadly lacking in big Eva. Uh, and especially in the boomer generation uh, evangelicalism, that really has overseen the decline of the church in our era. Um, and, um, and, and, and we are picking up the pieces now. And unfortunately, I, I had really hoped that this could have, could have ended on a really good grandfatherly note from Alistair. I'm a, I'm a grandfather pastor. I'm faithful to the word. I made a mistake on this one. Forgive me, everyone. That was poor advice. I've heard uh, the constructive feedback, and um, uh, I'm repentant on that one. That's good counsel. This is a critical moment that people shouldn't be uh, in any way in, in gr swimming in gray water uh, on such a crystal clear issue in Scripture. Um, and to set it up as Pharisees and condemnation versus um, the, 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 the prodigal's father and compassion in such an erroneous way is a very sad report, I feel. And I still hope that perhaps Alistair uh, will reflect on some of this and in the coming days will be prevailed upon to say, you know what, I, I was wrong. Um, and, then, and then, you know, the Christian radio stations um, won't cancel him. I mean, I'm sure some of these remarks have come out of hurt feelings. I, I don't doubt it, right? You're, it's, gonna, it's going to be hurtful um, if you're criticized in this way, but the way to respond is not to lash out uh, and to draw these false uh, dichotomies. Um, and so, you know, um, I would say, look, we want to be gracious and, and respectful to Alistair and respect him as a brother in the Lord and as an older brother um, but we want to also, for the sake of this generation and the next generation of believers coming through, be critical uh, and, and faithful to Scripture and to the Word of God, even when uh, older senior brothers err uh, on such a critical issue. And that's why, you know, maybe some people think it's overkill, and this has been a longer show, been a good, you know, hour and 20 or more. Uh, that we've spent we spent three episodes on this issue, but with good reason, because as you said earlier on, Nate, uh, if this was um, Rob Bell or or a Steve Chalk or some other uh, apostate evangelical former, um, well, you don't need to spend time on it because uh, um, people they're not they're not going to be leading the, the 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 kind of audience that Alistair Begg has got astray. We've had to spend time on this to be faithful because of the nature of his audience. And Scripture reminds us: remember, those who teach are subject to a stricter judgment. That's exactly right. And uh, so we we do definitely look forward to moving on. I think uh, we would love to see men like Alistair Begg, who have been so faithful in areas of, of doctrine and theology for so long, um, rather than sort of criticize the courage and the clarity of some of the young evangelicals coming up behind them, we would love to see um, you know, him utilize and harness that courage and point it in the right direction near the end of his ministry, um, rather than sort of to shrink away and not want to um, engage in controversy near the end of his uh, ministry. So um, just know that as you hear us talking and responding to Alistair Begg, that we are also praying for our brother Alistair Begg and for all those in his church. Uh, and uh, we would certainly uh, welcome if uh, if he or any uh, anybody close to him would ever want to uh, uh, 
converse about such things. Um, we, uh, we believe that we are to come together and, uh, and reason together from the scriptures. And hopefully uh, we've at least done that for our listeners uh, together. So Alistair, if you're listening, I'm, I'm sure you, know, you don't listen much to me, but Joe's worth listening to. And, uh, and if you ever want to come on the show uh, with him, uh, we'd be happy to have you. Uh, we're going to end now. And uh, I would like to remind you, as always, that for him and through him and to him are all things. To Christ be glory forever. Amen. We'll see you again next week.